Hello, you are listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. This week, an exciting announcement for the show. We get upset about cinema etiquette. Has Martin Scorsese ever met a woman? And the complicated history and transformative potential of the four-day working week. This is Cool Story. I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. I already know what you did this week. Please tell me what happened in your apartment. (laughs) Well, I would estimate approximately at least a litre of champagne has been spilled on my rugs. (laughs) (laughs) We had our big Cool Story launch party, which was excellent. One of the key purposes of the party was to celebrate and promote the show and we had a sick one and got zero content. Yep. (laughs) No, like everyone had so much fun, barely anyone took any photos and therefore barely anyone posted, which is meant to be the point of a launch party. Yeah. So in hindsight, wouldn't change a thing. (laughs) Um, My favourite memory is approximately midnight or a little bit past when one of our mates announced that they were coming to the party but very lost in the neighbourhood and so Bridie, you and I ran out onto the street to find her and went, I would say 500 metres and you were not wearing any shoes. No. I I went back to my core self, my core bogan self. So I live on like the strip in King's Cross and this is a Saturday night slash wee party hours of Sunday morning. There are like trails and streams of human urine going from like the sides of clubs into the gutters. And I touched them all. You touched them all. You're just like hopping over the pits in bare feet while we're trying to find our friend giving us the most like vague descriptions of non-landmarks. Yeah, non-landmarks. We had to be like, what can you see? And she's like, a tree. I could see cars. I'd had her on these enormous, cool purple heels, but I'd been we'd been standing and dancing so much we had. that I'd taken them off in your apartment. And in hindsight, could have just shoved a pair of your sneakers on. <laughs> yeah, they're all there right beside yeah. the door, yeah. But I didn't. I went back to my core bogan self. I am a very barefoot gal. I used to embarrass Rick Morden so much in university because when I, I moved from the country to the Gold Coast for uni and I used to still go to uni with no shoes on <laughs> and he hated it. I hate that. So <laughs> You're much. so disgusted. I love that you woke up and you raised it almost immediately with me. <laughs> you went barefoot down the street. I'm like, I oh, know, I wasn't even that pissed then. I just didn't <laughs> feel like putting on the shoes. So much partying. Oh, I, and my amazing playlist. Yes. Bridie had an incredible playlist. I think, like, my voice has almost recovered. I could barely talk the next day from all of the, like, scream, yell, singing. I think I remember we there were a lot of us screaming along to Champagne Supernova and in a really good mood, and then it went seamlessly into Cruel Summer. Yep. And collectively the party just lost their fucking minds it was (laughs) I worked hard on the playlist the playlist builds in a crescendo specifically everyone vibing at the beginning getting into the night and as the playlist goes on it gets more and more bangers more songs to screech along to I had 10 minute all too well at 11 30 for the real heads which you didn't partake in screeching along to no I don't remember that (laughs) but then after that yes and Oasis in the playlist is a very brighty characteristic I am going to post this playlist in the show notes and I'm also going to post it on Insta because I am so proud of it. I think that if it wasn't for that playlist, everyone would have been home like an hour and a half earlier. Yeah, at least. Than what we were. The last couple of hours was just everyone singing and dancing. It was so much fun. Yep. You said right before we started recording that this might be your last party of the year. Excuse me? (laughs) What did you mean by that? You're not getting away with it. (laughs) It was so much fun and it is October and I am so shattered. Like I am so tired. I just have a boring answer to that. I'm so tired that um, I just had too much fun. I did my quantity and you know how you just need to hibernate for a while after? Righty. Well, I think when this ep comes out it will, oh, no, it will like almost be ticking over to November. 
This is party season. And I'm winding down. The party oh gal God. is winding down. I party through the winter. I'm going to hibernate in Can summer. I retire those purple <laughs> heels? No, I can't. But I'll probably party after our extremely exciting event in December, our Xmas extravaganza. Yeah, so for everyone listening, you were unfortunately not invited to the Cool Story launch party because it was in my home. <laughs> we but can't fit. We, we can't. could barely fit the people that we fit in yes. that apartment. Yes, it is a tiny apartment. But you can come if you live in Sydney or can get here. We are having our first ever live show. We're calling it our Xmas extravaganza. It's December 19. It's going to be at the Vanguard in Newtown. As this podcast is published, tickets will go live. Yes. So we will put the link for them in the show notes. We'll also put the link on Instagram. If you Google Cool Story Xmas Extravaganza and Vanguard, yeah, the link should come up for the tickets. It is going to be pretty limited, the tickets, because we're testing out. Yeah, we're making it affordable. Like, it's just going to be fun. We're just yeah, going to see how it's it goes. Gonna be fun. Yeah. We're going to have – we're going to review the year. Yes. We're going to have lucky door prizes. Yes. We're going to have a quite a few fun surprises. I think I'm going to surprise you. What? Oh, I'm so excited. But we're, we're keeping it small. We're keeping it intimate. We're keeping it fun. So if you want to come along, I would say get in quick and yes. grab a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Bridie will be partying once more. Yeah, okay, I'll party that night. I'll yeah. party that night. I think it's a Tuesday. I'll create a new playlist. Oh, what I'll create do you a new playlist. Mean? I'll create my Christmas playlist <gasps> for it. Nice. Okay. All right. I'm ready for that. And what so after recovery, what did you do this week? Finished an incredible novel. What? That is I finished a novel that was so good that I finished it on Sunday night. And on Monday, I reread the last two chapters. Whoa. I was that moved by it. It's called Lazy City by Rachel Connolly. She's a Northern Irish writer. She's from Belfast. This is her first novel. She's pretty young. She's written a few pieces for, you know, The Guardian and The New York Times that I've followed her a bit and always liked her writing. And when she said she was coming out with a novel, you know, people who are really good at columns and analysis and then they do fiction and you kind of think, mm. oh, maybe. Yeah. Like, I always think their publishers must be like, oh, yeah, because <laughs> don't do that. Exactly. Her publisher absolutely would have wanted her to do a book of essays yeah. for sure. And instead she's done this fiction, which I was kind of interested in. And then um, my friend went to London and brought it back and said it was great. So I got it. It's I don't think that you can buy it in bookshops in Australia, but if you went to your independent bookshop, they would order it in for you. I'm sure you can get it on any e-reader. I ordered it from blackwells.co.uk, which is like an English Oxford bookshop that posts to Australia, shipping free. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so um, the price in the book is included in the shipping. So sometimes if I can't find a book or I want the international Mm. edition, I do that. Anyway, it's about a girl grieving the death of her best friend and she moves back to Belfast in Northern Ireland from London. She's about in her late 20s. Is it, sorry, is it set now? Yep. Yep. And she's knocking around um, Belfast. She has a bit, bit, bit of a difficult relationship with her mother, but it is not a sad girl novel. Like she Good. is so, it surprised me in so on so many pages and so many passages where you think she's going one way with like, um, oh, like I'm so upset and I'm so lost. That's not what she's like. And then she would just, she has incredible self-awareness and self-insight and observations about things going on around her. And also I think that as someone who was raised by a very, very Catholic mother, a Northern Irish Catholic mother, so probably a lot in common with Rachel, the way she talks about being like our age or my age or, you know, in your early 30s, having been raised ultra-Catholic, not really being Catholic anymore, but what it feels like to be culturally Catholic and what you hold on to and how you still feel about the church and how you turn to certain spiritual things when things are difficult. She just, I find it hard to articulate what my relationship with, you know, God or spirituality or even the Catholic church is. And she just really captured it. How, you know, you don't go to mass every week and you don't even necessarily believe in the Catholic God, but you still believe in something and you still, it's such a habit to talk in your head to God or to pray. I don't know. I don't know if I'm getting it across probably, but I just found this book so amazing. I think even if you weren't raised by like an insane Northern Irish Catholic mother, (laughs) there's still so much in it. And then the last chapter is just this incredible meditation on what it is to be a person, what it is to be a good person, 
what it is to grieve, uh, what it is to strive to be better. And if you really did everything to make yourself a better person, would you still be you? It was just so moving and so well written, but like an actual, you know, story flowing in it. And just her doing things that aren't necessarily great, like not necessarily a good person, which who wants their protagonist to be a good person. But in her case, she actually owns it, which I find so refreshing in modern fiction or modern fiction about like youngish women. Anyway, I loved it. Lazy City by Rachel Connolly. I'm like specifically really sick of sad girl novels. Exactly. Can you talk a bit more about how this is not a sad girl novel? Well, she's not moping around feeling sorry for herself. Right. She doesn't, she's not in the world feeling that the world is happening to her and she has no control. She knows that she has choices and opportunities and that she's actively making choices and that she has agency, which I think happens a lot in sad girl novels. They kind of pretend they don't have agency. Yes. And so this character definitely has agency. She's not moping around. She doesn't feel sorry for herself. And she's also very, very observant of the people and situations around her. And I find a lot of the sad girl novels very just self-focused and self-obsessed, which I do not think that this book is. Mm. And it's honestly like an incredible take. It's not a sad girl novel, but it's an incredible take on the sad girl novel. And I found it, yeah, very moving. It's just very, I think the thing about sad girl novels is they can be quite infantilizing. Infantilizing. Thank you. Yeah, that's all right. And she is not that. She just takes so much ownership in it and is so self-aware and life isn't something just happening to her. Yeah. She she is like this person in the world, enjoying it, not enjoying it, making mistakes, not making state mistakes, being hurt by other people, hurting other people and just never making excuses yeah. for herself. It's It was really great, a great book. Mm. And very different, like a very, very unique book. Yeah, that sounds unique. Yeah. I'm also very like, I know I poopa like star signs and things all the time, but I am very interested in hearing young people's or like people from our generations grappling with their beliefs, especially when they have to some degree pif- pivoted or shifted from what they were raised in and how they then grapple with whether or not they believe in a God or or regardless of whether or not they do, how much that actually affects their daily life and decisions. And if they do or don't believe in a God, how they build their communities and how they build their moral framework because that's very much something that religion would have previously done for a lot of people. Yeah, and what community looks like if it's not the church on Sunday. And what is right and wrong if it's not the Ten Commandments. Which Ten Commandments are pretty legit. Like they're actually a pretty good guiding principle. (laughs) Uh, Well, the other thing we did is we went to see Kills of the Flower Moon. Which we didn't discuss after. No, we deliberately kept a lid on it. Um, We're going to get into the intellectual side of this conversation, but first of all, we just need to raise how much I am still fucking fuming about people's lack of cinema etiquette. So you got way madder than me. I got annoyed, but I also thought that it could have been way worse. And yeah. when I was getting really pissed off, I said to myself, well, you want to go out in public and watch this movie with a bunch of strangers, sometimes you've got to put up with their bad manners and their idiosyncrasies. <laughs> You're so angry right now. No, I'm fuming. Well, you say what happened. Well, where, do I, where does one begin? <laughs> no, two key things. One, you were sitting to my right and the person to my left had this fucking Apple Watch, not once, not twice, not three times, four times raised their hand, the hand, the arm that was closest to me to like, you just, you know, whatever, touch their face or like put their hair behind their ear, at which point their Apple Watch lit up I know. so brightly. Brie, I think that she was tapping it to look at the time. I don't think <gasps> it was an accident those four times. She was tapping it to look at the time because it was shining so brightly in my, even though I was one person along, it would have been much worse for you. It was shining in my eyes as well. And also I'm pretty sure with an Apple Watch that you can lock it like a phone, you can make the screen go dark again and she wouldn't do that. No. She'd look at the time 
then like it would be so bright for quite a few minutes, shining in everyone's eyes. And also seeing such a long movie, this is also just a kind of personal thing. When I am on a long haul flight, yes, I don't check the time because it's just a way to make it go slower. Like I don't look at the time and think I'm an hour in, like 10 hours to go. It's just better to just get into a zone and be like, here I am, this is my life. Yeah. Like, I'm like, if I watch the clock like every 10 minutes, it's going to feel a lot longer. I didn't want to, in a three and a half hour movie, be reminded of the time. And this woman kept shining the time in our faces. It made like, if somebody has made, or if a team of people have made a three and a half hour film, it's because they want you to be and feel fully immersed, to like be forced to sit in that world and get consumed by it. And it was a very compelling consuming movie. Yeah. Like I was very in it. Anyway, and she, uh, yeah, I don't think it was an accident. Like you say, she's touching her face. No, she was tapping it to look at the time and then just like. I guess it's just like beyond my conception that someone could four times be such a fuckwit. I am livid. And then, well, I was getting, so I was getting cranky about her waving her hand around, but I, then I thought to myself, well, you want to go out into the world, right? You've got to rub up against other people. Like, no, just let well, it go. fucking <laughs> do better. And then, so, then another person in the cinema towards the end of our row had to get up. If I had to guess, well, I could have just checked my seatmate's fucking Apple Watch to see what the time was. But if I had to guess, it would have been at like the three out of three and a half hour mark. That's exactly where I think it was. Yeah. Which, fair enough. Like, you had to get up and I go did to the a lot of training not to go yeah. to the bathroom in this movie. Yeah. My pelvic floor has been through a lot. It's actually impressive that I pulled it off. So, fair enough, you have to go yeah. to the bathroom three hours. That's in. fine. Like, yeah. fine. But she comes back and just starts going, like, oh, what did I miss? oh, I'm confused. So what's happening now? And then they're like what I would describe as like the cinematic climax of the film. This woman goes, oh, so she knows. (laughs) And I was sitting there and I was like, if I wasn't with Bridie, I would lean over and tell that woman to shut the fuck up. But if I do that, Bridie will think I'm a bitch. And then the lights came up and you immediately started talking about how frustrated you were by that person. And I was like, I should have said it. No, no. Well, I I would shush people in a movie, but I was just like, she's going to, she didn't talk the whole way through. No. Uh, you, I love that you get angry and angry and angry and I have like my self-regulation uh, strategies where I thought again to myself when she was annoying me, like, it's worse to shout whisper than to talk. Like, it's louder when you're shout whispering. Yeah. I thought to myself, well, she didn't do it through the entire movie. Imagine if she'd shout whispered her commentary through the entire movie. So I I let it go. <laughs> but I, I, I have to judge you if you told her to shut the fuck up, but I just thought, oh, the movie's almost over. She's going to be She's quiet already ruined it. it. Yeah, she's – oh, it's not <laughs> – and um, but no, I, I was like the strikes. etiquette. But, Over three strikes. Though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I've shushed people before, yeah. but um, only when they keep going. But I remember in Moonlight. Have you seen Moonlight? No, I haven't. Oh my god, it is such a beautiful, beautiful emotional movie. And I remember going and seeing that at the same cinema as Dendi in Newtown, and I was watching it, and at this like incredibly like fraught scene where this man is getting to be tender in a way that the world net does never allows him and it's just and it's so beautifully shot and so quiet and like and yeah maybe like one of the climaxes of the movie this person opened their plastic bag put moved their hand around it so crumpled everything around in the plastic bag pulled out the chips and then opened (gasps) opened it and I was like in the quietest, most tender, like the part of the movie where you're crying. And I've always remembered that was years ago. That was like six years ago and I always remember being like, oh, my God, pick your moment. Because there are some people who don't like other people eating in the cinema and I think, well, you can't go to the cinema if you don't like other people eating. But I think you can be considerate of how you eat. Yeah. So like for You're example, a very quiet popcorn eater. Thank you. I think about this a lot because, for example, we got popcorn and Maltesers and Maltesers – like I'll put them in my mouth, but if we're if we're then watching like a quiet scene, I will not crunch that Malteser. I will just and, suck on it and, and let it dissolve. Did you notice that I pulled the Maltesers into the popcorn in a noisy scene? Yes, you did. So it was a See? noisy scene, yes. then I pulled the Maltesers into yes. the popcorn. Yes. Anyway. See, this is basic fucking Cin- etiquette. Cinema etiquette. Anyway, oh. made you a lot angrier than it made me. <laughs> because I I'm, was surprised at your rage, actually. Well, I love going to the movies and love it so much that I just – 
take it seriously. And it's like one of the great joys, right, when you see a film with a group of people in there and you all are like laughing at the same bit. There's like a way in which if everyone in the cinema is there in like the right spirit and etiquette and intention, you all like elevate the watching experience in a way that's not possible at home. And yet when people come back from the toilet and I like stage whispering loudly to catch up during the biggest fucking emotional scene of the film – yeah, I just oh, I need I need to. Do you remember the moment exercise. in the scene? Do you remember the moment in the movie where I laughed really loud and no one else laughed, <laughs> and I thought something was funny and like kind of laughed in my way. Obviously, try to be conscious in a cinema and not laugh too loud. But there was just a bit that I found really funny that no one else did, and I laughed. And then you said so embarrassed, Bridie. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't a particularly emotional scene no, or anything, no. but I was no. just the only person who found it funny. I think I found that funny, but then I found it even more funny that you laughed. So like, <laughs> That was not an admonishing bridey. That was a, I don't know, lack of lols. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, I didn't feel admonished. I thought that you would just been like, oh, my God, here you go, bridey. Put so your what shoes did you- back on. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think of the movie? Okay. We've had a couple of days to think about it. And I feel even more, well, not even more, I suppose frustrated about how much more incredible it could have been. So, If Martin Scorsese had ever met a woman? (laughs) (laughs) If he'd maybe spoken to a woman? (laughs) Yeah, there's that. And I was thinking about the Scorsese I have seen which most recently is The Departed, which is, again, like a film that demonstrates that not only has Scorsese but presumably a great number of the people who made it never met a woman. (laughs) And there's a way in which I can, frankly, like put that to one side if the story that I am seeing being told is still sufficiently compelling and tells me something I didn't know and 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 or is beautiful or is well written or whatever. It's not the case that I dismiss something automatically just because it has shit women characters or no women characters. Oh, same. And I can definitely watch something that's for the fellas. Should we briefly say what the plot is of this movie? Yeah, okay, good. All right. It's based on a true story yep. of the Osage Osage, Osage yeah. people in Oklahoma in America who had the mineral rights to land and on that land oil was found, I think, around the 1920s. And so they got a share of the profits and became incredibly wealthy. And at one point they were like the richest people per capita in the world, you know, Native Americans. And then so obviously a lot of white people come in to do business with them, to mine the oil, to work on the oil rigs. And And the town booms around it, that classic sort of mining boom thing. Yeah. And um, what is very unusual, I guess, in the world's history is that the town booms around it and the native people get a share of the profits and are among the richest or are the richest people in the town. And so, and I would just add to that, what is further unusual is that, and this is a line that characters say in the film, it's not how I would use the terminology, but if you are a full-blooded Osage, you get the money that comes from the mining leases and that included the women. That was what was also quite different is that if you were an Osage woman, you were entitled to a share of those mining profits. Yeah, but you also had to get your spending yeah, but, um, ticked off by a man. But like it's they a core part like, of this narrative yeah. that, that, had, that was not, the norm at Not the usual time. at all. Yeah. So it's wealthy women and anyway, a lot of white people come in to do business with them, also to work on the rigs, also part of the town, and they really, really, really resent the Osage being so rich. And this is all true. This all actually happened and a lot of the Osage end up being murdered. Yep. And when they first started being murdered, those killings were not investigated and it took many, many years and many, many deaths before the killings were investigated. The local police wouldn't investigate. The local police are white. It ended up the fledgling FBI, it's sort of how the FBI was founded is around this, came in to the town from Washington to investigate the murders. They figure out who's behind them and that's essentially the movie. Yep. And then so let's very briefly for people who aren't familiar, this film is told with Leonardo DiCaprio's character Ernest 
Burkhart, he is like sort of the protagonist slash anti-hero. He's a white man. He His uncle is a sort of, how would you say, like patriarch of the community. He's a big, big man in town. And Ernest meets and marries Molly, who's an Osage woman. And a common phenomena at the time is an Osage woman marrying a white man. And then so how much can we say about what happens without any spoilers? It's basically in the trailer, right? I don't think we need to say any more than that. Like that's basically the movie. You're figuring it, you're finding out who's behind the murders. You're also following like the love story marriage of these two characters. And it's told a lot through the eyes of Leo DiCaprio, Ernest Burkhead, who I found – so the two leads, Leonardo and um, Molly is the is Lily Gladstone, I think her yeah. name is. Lily Gladstone is phenomenal. Yeah. Amazing, like t- so believable. What an amazing actress. Like every time she was on screen, I was just there. I believed it was happening. I believed her. I believed her character. I usually really like Leonardo. I found him so distracting at points the way that he played this. He sort of like almost overacted in points, I thought, and what he did with his mouth and his jaw, I just, I, it just took me out of the movie at so many points. Yeah. That's that's so beside the point. No, it's not. Okay. So this Mm. is my biggest issue with the film is that a core premise of the film, right, is that Leonardo DiCaprio's character is supposed to be this kind of like handsome rascal. Yeah. And he's not handsome in this movie. But even that, it's like, there was a, ooh, I think, badly handled, potentially very interesting but unfortunately badly handled grey zone about what he did or didn't know at any given time. And we were supposed to sort of believe that he was this, like, handsome rascal who was at times very sort of clever and kind of wily and that Molly, who is this, like, very wise and clever and chill, savvy woman had like fallen in love with him. And, you know, she calls him um, a coyote and it's, you know, the, the, the scenes where they were courting are like hilarious and good. But then through this sort of like, I would say overacting and overdone performance, Leonardo DiCaprio's character verges into this like, how would you even describe it? I found it completely impossible to suspend my disbelief. He verged into this absolutely sort of like idiotic, incapable character and it just, the premise falls apart if the same reason that Molly is into him because he's so kind of like handsome and scoundrelly and like kind of wily, it falls apart then if he's actually somebody who is fully able to be like manipulated and impressionable and doesn't actually know what he's doing. Like there was just... Well, he gets too stupid because I can believe that he can be wily and not as smart as he thinks and that he can be taken advantage of and suggestible. I could believe all those things, but he just played him too stupid towards the end. Yeah. And that's what I didn't believe, that he was that stupid as what – like the character did go up and down so much. At the beginning he seems very slow. Then when he's courting Molly he seems funny and quick and quite dry. And then he goes back to being really stupid again. I would believe him as like a henchman or whatever. He just played him too stupid. And what I would also believe, what I did like that I think Scorsese was trying to do was the characters in this movie, do, there's some of them who do some very, very evil things. And I think that he portrays them at times as very ordinary people. And yes. that I really liked. Yes. That it wasn't just evil people doing these awful things because that's how it happens. Ordinary people, you know, their self-interest takes over or at times their stupidity takes over or they get too carried away in something and they do or they get too wrapped up in something and all their morals and ethics get very muddy. That is how evil things happen. Like it does a disservice to everyone to just pretend that like only evil people do evil things. And so I think that's what Scorsese was trying to do and which he achieved at some points of the film but not exactly with Leo's character because he it he just became too stupid and it, it and that part didn't wasn't believable and so what wasn't believable what we were saying about how Scorsese, Scorsese ever met a woman is it all falls apart because you can't 
see at points why Molly is with him. Yeah. In the courting bit, you can see what she's attracted to. But yes. then when he's so simple and so slow and so stupid in other parts, in how he talks to other people and how he expresses himself, you just think, why would she be with him? Like you can't. Yeah. And there's you're, this- n- you're not showing me why what she's for, like how it's almost, he's almost childlike at times. He is. And you think she, a woman like that who has showed herself in all these other instances to be very strong, savvy, as you said, wise. She would, like, I believe a woman falling for a, a bad man, absolutely. But it's not just that he is bad or annoying. It's that he is shown to at times be very simple-minded. And I just thought, I, you haven't, you're not showing enough what is there for Molly. Yeah. Like we know what's there for Ernest. I don't really understand what's there for Molly. Here's why it comes back to Scorsese having never met a woman. You know there is this obviously this trope of the quote-unquote noble savage and that there is this kind of like whatever, this sort of like special knowledge or, or wisdom. There is a way in which men filmmakers and men authors, I, I encounter it more often, who don't have like actual real human being women in their lives will include one, maybe two women characters in their works who are sort of just like somehow perfect and like wise and just sort of barely put up with these men and are just on this pedestal because they're not actually real human being women. They're these women on a pedestal. And I think that Scorsese has put Molly on this pedestal. The reason Molly's character still works is like purely through the tour de force that is Gladstone's acting performance. But the fact that there is just this one woman character and all of these men supporting characters and she's on this pedestal and doesn't get the chance to sort of, I don't know, be more real because she's like her relationship with her husband is unbelievable to me because like Scorsese doesn't understand gender. I don't know. Yeah, but there are other parts about her that I found real. I did find her a well-rounded character But how can you say that if you don't believe why she chose or stayed with her husband, which is like the core tenet of the film? Because her relationship with her sisters, her relationship with her mum, her grit at times. That's true. Some of the courting scenes as well. Like she did not seem one dimensional to me at all or like just a fake woman on a pedestal it's only that part I didn't find believable because I have to ask you overall did you enjoy the movie yes I'm glad I saw it yeah I enjoyed it as well and because we're like we're picking at that main part and the more I thought about it same as you frustrated is the word I would use as well the more frustrated I became with that but when I'm sitting in that cinema watching that three and a half hour movie I did not think oh, how much longer is this going to go for? Or like this is dra- – I never felt that it dragged. I had problems with some bits but I felt compelled the whole time. I thought the way the story was told at times was amazing. Like he is a seriously talented filmmaker. I loved seeing a movie with an actual plot. <laughs> Very true. Very true. It <laughs> didn't involve monsters or superheroes. Yeah. Or like, and, and I'm glad I saw it at the cinema, I want to say same. as well, because it's it's it, at, in many, many parts – beautiful yeah, to behold. It, it's so beautifully shot. So many of the characters are really interesting. It's surprisingly funny at a lot of points. Like I found it very funny at a lot of points. And I did think it was a very overall well-made, like how can I say overall well-written movie when there's such like that glaring omission. But I did still find it very well written at times, I guess I would say. The final- and I didn't I didn't want and I sit in hour and a half movies being like when is this going to be over? <laughs> the final thing I want to say is that I would like to call a moratorium on directors having cameos in their own films. If it's what so you were, distracting, I find isn't it, it so distracting. I find it it's like, like um, write, writers having cameos in their own books. Yeah, I find it excruciatingly egotistical. And if what you're trying to do, especially with a three and a half hour film, if what you're trying to do is like really immerse me and have me suspend my disbelief, you can't just like insert your own whole self in there. But I guess that the way he inserted himself was at a bit of a silly, unbelievable bit. He wasn't in like the actual yeah, but story. And, I, what, and, it, and I think he was trying to make a statement with what he was reading out. Yeah, but just yeah. do that with the art. Don't put yourself <laughs> in the art. Like, come on. No. Anyway, I'm glad I saw it and I would recommend people see it. But to me, there was just that 
like colossal flaw that made me, made me, made it really difficult for me to suspend my disbelief oh, and no. like get fully invested. I hope Molly wins an Oscar and I hope Leo doesn't even get nominated. <laughs> yes, I support that. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> the story that I saw a lot of people talking about this week is Medibank trialing four-day work week. Love it. Thought I loved it. Then thought about it more. Now I'm not sure. Yes. What is? Yeah. Oh, here we go. So thought I loved it too. So they so they're doing a trial with 250 employees for four day work week on a 80 180 model. No, no 180 100. Which is you still have to keep up your same productivity. 100. You work 80 percent of the day, so four days a week, and you still get 100 percent of your pay. Yep which I think is so doable in a lot of office jobs. Oh, yeah. When I first saw it, I thought that's cool that Medibank is trialling that and that that could open the way for, uh, you know, the rest of their employees or other big companies. So I, I re- And then I looked up Medicare's Medibank's press release on it and it was so funny. They're calling it The Gift, <laughs> the four-day work week, The Gift, and they're like, we're gifting our employees free time so that they can spend that fifth day of the week doing things they love and being with their family. And employees said about the gift, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, my God, like what a way to frame it. Like you're like this benevolent being. So fumbled. Giving it to your employees out of the goodness of your heart. It's so clearly a PR exercise. Then I read more about it and that's when I started to come to the view it's a PR exercise. They're trialling it for six months, which is just – not long enough. No. If you're going to trial something like that, it has to be longer than six months because I assume those employees, like if that happened for me, I'd be rearranging childcare. And when you rearrange childcare, there's a lot of things that you have to organise. Like, you know, if I went reduced childcare for six months and then my employer was like, actually, you need to come back for that extra day, it could be really difficult because to add an extra day onto childcare, the childcare can turn around and say, well, we don't have space for that day anymore. Like Mm. you're just going to have to go on a waiting list and wait. But you also can't like six months would be just when employees are getting into the swing of it, of like getting their 100% productivity with their 80% of days. And so it's not long enough. And also it's so funny that they're trialing with 250 employees. They've got 4,000 employees. Imagine working with people and knowing they're getting paid the same as you and they only have to work four days a week. Like what is that going to do for camaraderie and like worker morale in yeah. the workplace? So what were, what were those your issues or what were no, your issues? No, so I was reading this. So the article that we were both reading from, well, I was at least from Sydney Morning Herald, and it went on and it said that their experiment follows an announcement from West Farmers owned Bunnings in May to trial different work models, such as a four-day week or a nine-day fortnight for full-time workers. That's a first for the retail industry. And I read that part and I just had this like, because until I'd read that part, I was like, fuck yeah, four-day working week, great, like love it. Everyone can sort of stop churning and like spending the best days and years of their lives at the office. And then I just had this realization when I read that part that the vast majority of the types of workers who like need to be present are women. Women dominate retail. Women dominate caregiving professions. And what I just saw was this future in which the people who are already like up in like higher levels of companies get to work four days a week and none of the teachers get to work four days a week because you can't do 100% of your job by focusing it on four days of the week. If you work in a school, if you work in a restaurant, if you work in an aged care home, if you like, I just started like getting flipped out that it could be, I just like all the things that make it so exciting and potentially transformative apparently are only like going to be available to the people who are like already making bank at the top. Well, nurses have a version of it. Like, like nurses' rosters are very interesting and work in quite a complicated way. Yes. But the way – so when my brother was at a Sydney hospital, he could choose to be, go on a 12-hour roster. So they could choose to have eight-and-a-half-hour shifts or 12-hour shifts. And when he was doing 12-hour shifts, it was obviously so intense and so hectic. But he would only have to do four of them and then he would have three or four days off. And what it essentially resulted in was that a week of the month he would have off. 
Yeah, but that's still and that so no so that, that, like so the nursing aside because that's like a complicated way to do it. But I thought if you start it in offices and white collar jobs, then it eventually does well. Maybe this is naive. Could trickle down into other areas as well. But people working in retail and people working in nurses and people doing teaching already are on a different plane to white collar workers who can work from home or who are working 9am to 5pm Monday to Friday. Yeah. Which is just like, but then maybe it would mean like if, if we move towards four day work week, I think that offices are a good place to start because it's the easiest place to start. And then you figure out the other ways as you go, like actually the history of this is really interesting. Well, one of the histories, there is a way for um, people who have to actually show up to work to do this. So Kellogg's, WK Kellogg's, we're going back in time, everyone. Oh, my God. Strap, strap. <laughs> Where is this going? I'm so <laughs> passionate about a four-day work week. W.K. Kellogg's owned Kellogg's, makes a cereal. So what's really interesting is that from the 1820s to the 1920s, the society focus was very much on reducing work hours. And for that 100 years, people's weekly work hours were reduced because technology came in and made jobs easier. And instead of what they do now where they make like a gig economy and wring every last cent out of you, it meant that, you know, people could work less hours. So in the 1920s, the depression's on in America and W.K. Kellogg's comes up with four-day work week for his factory workers. And what that meant was instead of doing eight-hour shifts at the plant, which ran 24-7, they did six-hour shifts. So he could hire more people. So this is depression. So he could hire more people because the shifts are shorter. And they got something called productivity pay. So they had slight so when they signed on to all this in the 20s, the workers, they had slightly reduced pay, but not totally equivalent to only four days. But they got productivity bonus. And they also they didn't get night shift pay and they didn't get, I think, overtime pay, but they got productivity pay instead, which his WK Kellogg's thinking was they would be motivated to produce more. And what they found was that they did. So they basically, after a few years, had bumped their pay up to what they were on working five days a week, but they were getting that same pay for working four days a week. And 180, that, 180, 100. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but this was in like a blue collar job because, you know, the outcomes were yeah. easily assessed. Also in that time they found, so he was a welfare capitalist, which is like so rare now, but it basically means he believed that capital, capitalism could increase happiness through freedom from work. Which is unheard of now from someone as rich as what W.K. Kellogg would have been. So he wanted his workers to have more time for recreation, more time for church. He was very into church and more time for family. And so, and this also helped in the depression because it meant that he could hire more people because there was, you know, he had six hour shifts. So what's that? Four, um, four shifts to cover in 24 hours, as opposed to when they were on eight hours, which was three shifts to cover. It worked really well and it became a bit of a movement in America to the point that in 1932 both presidents had shorter working hours as part of their platform, both presidential candidates. Holy fuck. Yeah, the utopia we could have had, everyone. And what happened? Capitalism happened. And the movement came away from that because what happened was actually unions didn't cover themselves in glory during oh, this time. No. And unions started campaigning for more pay and for maximum pay and campaigning that workers needed maximum money, which then went into working five days a week. And so very quickly it changed to the point where like one of the presidents was, they were talking about um, the right to full-time work became the catch cry, <sighs> not the right to freedom from work. But how, how, how are these stats from the Kellogg's factory? So they they did this for a few years, six-hour shifts, people working four days. Overhead costs reduced by 25%. What? Accidents reduced by 41%. (gasps) And so with all the savings from those reductions, they were able to afford to pay people as much for six hours as they used to for eight. But then the unions came in and they basically bargained away six-hour shifts for maximum pay. No. And then and then World War II hit. So that didn't help because World War II hit and then there was a labour shortage. Yeah, and then well, so everything they, and changed then, after that. And yeah. so then that meant that they needed more people working eight-hour shifts because they didn't have enough people to cover six-hour shifts. But also they made it like very feminised to work the six-hour shifts. So there were still people at the Kellogg's factory up until the 1970s doing the four-day work week and getting paid as if for five. And they were mostly women. The quote that really depressed me 
was that when the union won this like right to full-time work and everyone went for maximum money rather than like, yeah. you know, reduced hours and a little bit less money. And she said the work hogs won, which is like such oh, a catch cry for now, isn't it? That is. The other thing I thought about when I was reading this more after I came down from my sort of high of just everyone do four days was how many mostly women go to either a three or four day working week when they have kids and get only get paid for three or four days but still actually in reality are on the same or almost the same productivity levels in their roles. Oh, totally. So, and this is exactly what happens. I think I've said previously it happens to so many women that I know as, as we all have children in our mid-30s. You work four days. You, you get paid for four days a week but you're working so much more. And this is the flip side of the office job. Yeah. You know, at least in a lot of – in retail or in nursing or – not teaching. I know they take their work home, but you kind of finish your shift and there's only so much work you can take home. Whereas when you're in the office jobs, you're expected to respond to emails at night and like people mm. can still be calling you or so often. And I love my job and I, I've got really good working conditions, but so often, you know, I'll rush from work to do the pickup, bring the kids home. And then I'm distracted on my phone, finishing up my things for the day, like, um, you know, talking to writers or sending edits or having Someone come back. So email on the phone sort of destroys a lot the utopia of the four-day work week even for a lot of office workers. But I think it's still something worth striving for and working towards. Yeah, yeah. I do like that like we came out of the lockdown pandemic lockdowns and that work from home was much more normalised. Yeah, and it, well, and has made a big difference for a lot of people. And also I guess semi-related to all of this, the other story that I saw yes. a lot of people talking about this week, which is – the women of Iceland going on strike. Yeah. So this week uh, the Prime Minister of Iceland, who is a woman, go Iceland, um, said that uh, in support of the goal to achieve full gender equality by 2030 that she would go on strike for the day. Apparently approximately 100,000 women and non-binary people in an all-day strike took the day off work both at their jobs and in the domestic setting, which is the biggest protest the country has ever seen. And – when I saw this story and sent it to you, what I thought about also was, um, oh, we must be approaching that day soon where they say that like women could just stop work for the rest of the year to make up for the gender pay gap. And I went and Googled it and equal pay day was back in August. Oh, really? So that's when basically when women start earning less than men. Yeah. For the whole rest of the year. For the whole rest of the year. Yeah. I thought the, the strike in Iceland is so interesting because what I found so interesting about this strike is that it's women in all these different kinds of jobs. Yes. So they, they'll keep the emergency room running. Yes. Um, and they'll keep a few emergency things going, but there's like reduced care in some nursing homes, reduced care on some wards, like skeletal stuff, which it just goes to show how much is women's work because the child cares wouldn't run. Yeah. You know, there's not Schools a lot of nursing stuff. Schools yeah. have to shut because the majority of teachers are women. But it also goes up to the corporate companies that all the women that work there go on strike as yeah. well. And then going on strike in the domestic sphere is so interesting to me as well. Yeah, me too. That's what I loved about this was that it was like just women everywhere. Well, women and non-binary people now. The In the 1975 strike that they had, that was the first women's strike in Iceland. It led to pivotal change, including the establishment of a women's political party, the Women's Alliance, and the election of the world's first female elected president of a country. That's this article that I'm reading from just about the kind of history of the strike. And what is interesting as well is that you know, often the rest of the world looks to Scandinavia as this kind of like utopian blueprint for having like achieved gender equality, like tick. And I really liked what the um, PM was saying in Iceland that like they're aware that people look to them for that and they are still have this huge big pay gap. I um, found that so interesting yeah. as well. And it also made me wonder if you went on strike in the domestic sphere for a day. Yeah. What wouldn't get done? Yeah, but, like, I feel like, okay, we need to – you and I are terrible people to have this conversation because we are both, I think, outliers in that we are in relationships with men who actually do things in the domestic. Oh, exactly. That's why I yeah. was interested to ask you. Yeah, like Because in my little. house it's like, ah, oh, the kids would still get fed. The kids would still – like, they, their meal would still be cooked. They'd still go to bed. They wouldn't get picked up, but that's not real. That's just a 50-50 parenting thing because yeah. my husband works in the evening. And, um, yeah, life would pretty much go on 
as usual in my also, house. Also, like, I'm maybe, self-employed. Okay, maybe, maybe the sheets wouldn't get changed because I'm always the one noticing the sheets or who, who likes the sheets changed. And maybe my children wouldn't be vaccinated <laughs> because I'm like admin person. So uh, I'm good yeah, at the yeah, admin yeah. side yeah. of things. So it would just be like, yeah, they wouldn't be vaccinated and the sheets wouldn't be changed, but my house is really not suffering that much. God. Yeah. That reminds me when people were like, Brady, how do you read so much? And you're like, oh, no, my house is a mess. <laughs> yeah. My house is disgusting. <laughs> um, again. Yeah. Anyway, Equal Pay Day in Australia back uh, was on 25th of August. So if you're listening to this and you're a woman, don't even worry about a four-day working week. Just stop working for the yeah. whole rest of the year. <laughs> Watch society collapse. What are you doing for the rest of the week? I'm volunteering at a primary school disco. <laughs> my, what? I know, my son's first one. Also my first parent volunteering role, which I would like to do a lot more of because there is so many things that do not happen for kids without volunteers and they're mostly the mums. But my work roster just isn't very friendly to it. But I'm on leave this week so I'm volunteering at the school disco. I have this recollection of dancing with my arms straight out in front of me on the shoulders of a boy and his arms are like sort of straight out in front of him just like the fingertips just grazing like either side of my hip and then we like rock side to side on our feet <laughs> whilst I'm blue abadie abadie place. my recollection is um <laughs> putting the outfit together oh big yeah time. like remember yes. like putting everything together but and I think they're quite devastating to my older son his younger brother is invited to the school disco, which didn't happen when I was at school. No, it has to be year specific. You can't have siblings telling yeah. on you. Oh, well, he's well, I'm there the whole time oh, because yeah. I'm a volunteer. Right. But, you ruined it already. <laughs> yeah, I've ruined it already for the five-year-old. No, I think he's excited that we'll be at school. And But his little brother, who's not even in school, is allowed to come, which I don't – I can't really remember, but I don't think that happened when I was a kid. That no your way. younger siblings would come if they weren't in school. No way. I tried to ban my younger siblings from my birthday party, oh, like wow. let alone from school discos. <laughs> I tell you what, Bridie, a picture is gradually emerging of you when you were younger being a really shitty sister. <laughs> seems like you're a great sister now, but. I ruled with an iron fist. Yes. Well, see you next week. See you next week. Can't wait to hear about it. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories and the biggest stories of the week. We are produced by Sam Devonport and we record on Gadigal Land. You can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.